John's Gospel, part 17. This morning, worship in spirit and truth and why the Father seeks such. I want to talk about what that is and why the Father seeks such. Jesus said the Father does seek those kind of worshipers, so we need to know something about it. A longer text, John chapter 4, 15 to 42. I hope you have a Bible. Always bring your Bible to church in some form or another. John 4, 15. This is the woman, the woman at the well we talked about last Sunday morning. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. So you see what's happening here? Jesus already knows, right? That's what he says. You're right in saying that. So Jesus knows exactly the condition that this woman is in, and yet he still asks her. You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. She knows something's going on here. The woman said to him, Sir, I, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. I wonder how many people do that. You worship what you don't know, the, the words, the actions, the place, but you, you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. So that he doesn't live in a temple made with hands, the Bible says that. He's a spirit. You, you, can't, you can't put him in a bottle. You can't put him in a place. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus is pretty blunt here. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. You imagine. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? And so the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. It's your deeds. So it's possible that she had five husbands, and they all died. But she's not thinking that, and Jesus isn't thinking that. This man told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, his disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. In another place, he said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, they don't get it. Has anyone brought him something to eat? 
Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then let's let the conversation shift gears. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes harvest. Well, they didn't. That's not in the conversation. They never said that to Jesus. Do not say, oh, do you not say, there are four months, then comes harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. And here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's interesting that the Apostle John places the story of the Samaritan woman right on the heels of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, the religious leader and authority in the Jewish religion. I mean, they're as different as night and day. Nicodemus is well-placed in Jewish society. He is recognized everywhere he goes. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's looked up to. He studies religion and the law of the Old Covenant. This nameless woman is a second class by all the past cultural measurements. She's second, first of all, just because she's a woman. and. Either she's been widowed five times, which certainly goes against the odds. More likely, she's been divorced. She's been set aside. She's been kicked out with no say in the matter. See, men could divorce women, but a woman couldn't divorce a man. And she's hated because of her past. She's hated because of her immorality. She's hated because she's a Samaritan. She's probably labeled as one of those women. So, yeah. These two, Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman, they're as different as two people could possibly be, but they have one thing in common. One thing the Apostle John wants to drill into our minds. They both desperately need Jesus. One is separated from Christ by pride, self-righteousness, the externals of the old covenant. The other is separated by shame, humiliation. And in a place like this, those two things are exactly the same. I can't see into your heart, but I can tell you this. In a room like this, everyone here who isn't in relationship with Jesus, hasn't been saved, born again, 
doesn't have the assurance of eternal life, however you want to word it. Everyone in this room who's in that category is there for the same two reasons. Either, well, I'm not, I'm not really a bad sinner, Nicodemus. I'm not a lawbreaker. I have a successful business and we give a lot of money to charity. I'm trying to raise my kids by the golden rule. I don't, I'm not addicted to internet porn or drugs. What do you mean I need Jesus? And for sure, that keeps people from coming to Christ. Uh, me? Then there's the other. Probably not as many, maybe some. Pastor Don, I, I, my life's too messed up. I can't, you can't get to Jesus from where I am. You don't, you don't know the kind of stuff in my past, what people think of me, what I've done. There. See, same two people. Nicodemus, upright, good, moral, upstanding. The Samaritan woman, too ashamed, too needy, can't get there. Both people, both people are lost. Both people are lost. Something else, they're both in the dark about how spiritual life is to be found and received. So John is showing us these two opposite ways through which people miss eternal life in the Son. Though Jesus uses different terminology, his point is the same with each. There's a spiritual regeneration needed. Nicodemus needs to be born again, 3.3. The Samaritan woman needs... Living water, 4.10. Eternal life, 4.13. There's something they both need and they don't know how to get it. Nicodemus thinks if I'm just a good enough person, do enough social justice. The woman thinks she's just off the charts bad. Neither one of them knows how, how do I get to Jesus? Something else important to notice about Jesus' conversation with this thirsty woman and it starts off point number one. Notice how Jesus uses the law in presenting the gospel. I'm fascinated with 15 to 19 in chapter 4. The, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, where does this come from? Just out of the blue. Go call your husband and come here. And the woman says, well, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You have no husband. You've had five. And the one you now have, she has this man, but it's not her husband. So what you've said is true. The woman, she knows she's been exposed. I, oof, I guess you're a prophet. You got me nailed down. There are, I want to tell you why I think that's such a relevant paragraph. And I hope I can say this without making enemies. I've learned that there's some things you just can't say without making enemies, and I'm sorry. I don't want to be your enemy. But there are prominent Christian leaders today who question 
the appropriateness of exposing sin as sin in those whom they would draw to Christ. The idea being, people already know their flaws. People already know their mistakes. They already feel the weight of their sin. What they're going to be drawn to is the unconditional love and beauty of Jesus, God the Son. Tell people they're loved and accepted. Don't rub people's noses in their sin. And I've got to tell you, there's something, there's something so righteous sounding in that approach that you almost don't dare to question it, ever. And I think that's precisely where these verses need to have their own say. Don't massage them, just let them jump out and speak. Jesus has already filled this woman's mind and heart with wonderful promises of life and grace and living water that she'll never be thirsty again. And it's a gift. I will give you this. So she's already heard news wildly beyond any of her expectations. I mean, imagine the hope inspired by the words of these two promises. I'm looking at chapter 4, 10 and 14. Two promises. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift, it's a gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me drink, you would have asked him, I guess I haven't kept up with these slides, have I get into the topic and now I'm here. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Then he says this, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water, welling up to, look at eternal life. I mean, we can't easily imagine putting ourselves in this woman's shoes, in that culture, in her situation, the shock that this woman would experience as she heard Jesus speak to her, to her, eternal life. For this woman? She probably found it hard to believe. That's what I want to give you. I want to give it to you. And then, immediately after these precious promises, tells her to go get her husband, knowing, knowing already that the man she's living with isn't her husband. Go and get your husband and come here. Now, we need to just stop and say, Jesus, why go there? What are you doing? Why don't you just, you promise, why don't you just give this woman living water already? Answer? You need to know the answer. Because in her present state, she can't receive living water, and Jesus knows that. Why not? And now you're asking the most important question you can ask about the entrance of living water for sinful people. So here's the question. 
do sinful people have to clean up their sin before they can receive God's grace? I think we're agreed. How many say no? I'll tell you now, this is a very easy exam. The correct answer is no. How many say no? Yeah. Do they have to sort of qualify first and then get living water? Is that what Jesus, because it looks like that's what he's doing, is that what Jesus is doing with this Samaritan woman? Why does he bring up this whole husband thing? He doesn't have to. And here's the answer that used to be obvious throughout the church, but is miles from being understood today. No, this woman does not have to clean up her own life before she can be the deeply loved object of God's grace in Jesus Christ. In fact, go further. There's... There's no way she can clean up her inward life on her own. Those memorable words of Jesus, first make the tree good, and then the fruit will be good also. You can't just fix the fruit. It's the whole tree. She can't do that. She can't do that. There's simply no way this woman can clean up her sinful life on her own, and Jesus isn't asking her to. We need to look closely at that because the point is broadly misunderstood in the church today. What is the road to eternal life? For example, hypothetically, let's pretend. Let's say we're reading the account and instead of going the way it goes, let's say this woman instantly decided to move out, break off the relationship with the man with whom she was living. That'd be good. True, that would break off the relationship and the piling up of future sin. But what about the, what about the accumulated guilt in the past? The days, weeks, maybe years, where she was sinning. With any of us, the same thing, but I'm just using the text. I don't mean just feelings of guilt she may have. I don't mean that. I don't mean low self-esteem. I mean the actual, stored-up, wrath-of-God-deserving sin that's still there. Even if she quit sinning right now, what about all this? Now, remember where we are. Jesus immediately tells this woman to go and get her husband knowing she isn't married to the man she's with. And if he doesn't do this to require her to clean up her own sin, why does he do it? He does it because while she can't clean up her own sin, she does have to admit her sinfulness. Living water comes to people who want to be cleansed of sin against God. It doesn't come to people who want moral advice and live by their own agenda. That's why Jesus administers the wise use of the law in drawing this woman 
into a loving embrace of the gospel and living water. Jesus knows if this New Testament use of the law is left out, the gospel will never be appreciated for its intended effect. It will turn into moral advice and a tool for propping up self-esteem, making things more socially acceptable, but it will never make someone right with a holy God. Never. So, so please note, the redeeming wisdom of God the Son. And as we follow the divine wisdom of Jesus, we'll learn to show people their sin. You need to wisely afflict the comfortable so the truth of the gospel can lovingly comfort the afflicted. Did you get that? We need to wisely afflict the comfortable in their sin so the gospel can come and lovingly comfort the afflicted people with their sin. That's what Jesus is doing. It's not a lack of love. It's the ultimate kind of love. Point number two. Jesus' words about worshiping in spirit and truth and how they're commonly misunderstood. Look at 20 to 24. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. It's important that she gets this. Believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and then he adds, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit truth. Since their refusal to help rebuild the temple, Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim. I talked about that last Sunday morning. Not in Jerusalem, where Solomon had built the temple. The Jews, of course, insisted that true worship be offered in Jerusalem, faithful old covenant worship in Jerusalem. The sacrifices had to be offered in the proper place or they weren't effective. Much in the same way, in, for example, the sacraments in Roman Catholicism have to be administered by a priest or they have no effect whatsoever. It's that, it's that kind of thing. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus is a Jew. And in the mind of this woman, he probably is a prophet, a Jewish prophet. And yet, Jesus takes neither side in this debate. He doesn't identify with the Samaritans, Mount Gerizim, or Jerusalem, home of the Orthodox, for official worship. What is going on here? The ground around reaching God seems to be taking a huge, traumatic shift, a seismic shift. And now we're ready to hear, to my mind, the greatest misuse of Jesus' spirit and truth remarks. Over and over again, I've heard people say, the point Jesus was making is the place of worship doesn't matter. 
It's like Jesus was simply saying they could worship anywhere they wanted, pretty much any way they felt led. You know, go to church. Don't go to church. It's up to you. Just think positive thoughts about Jesus. Love him. And I think that's nowhere near the cranium of Jesus when he makes those remarks. Jesus wasn't trying to say we could just worship anywhere we want, any way we want. I believe what he was trying to say was, no matter where you go or when you go there, no matter how special you think the place is, the location, you haven't got a ghost of a chance of reaching God if that's what you're counting on. He's a spirit. The meeting place with God has been redefined. His realm is not Jerusalem or Gerizim. It's not as though we have access as long as we can reach some special place. No. Jesus is saying we can't get to God on our own because we're material, we're physical, and we're sinful. God is spirit and holy and blazingly pure. There's no location no mountain of any kind that can bring spiritual life. I need living water. And Jesus tells me that it can only be found in an actual, living, affection-altering encounter with the redeeming, risen Christ. This is true of any time in any place. Maybe you sensed it in my praying earlier. It's true of this place. It's true of this place. It's true of this church service. The only thing that can reach your heart in this place is how aligned it is with Jesus Christ as your Lord. And to the extent that I use anything else, the right song, the right atmosphere, the right lighting, the right whatever, it's not going to get you to Jesus. It has to be in spirit and in truth. Truth like this woman. Go get your husband. Spirit and truth means I, I I don't have a husband. Not married. The one you're living with, you're right. It's not your husband. You've had five. That's what Jesus means, in truth. What did you bring into the sanctuary that you're hiding from Jesus? See, that's the thing. Me too. Me too. Because this place can't bring you to Jesus unless it's in spirit. He's a spirit and in truth. Boy, the church, we all need to hear that kind of thing. This woman needs to know to whom she is speaking right now. Jesus said to her, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. So if you knew who it is.
This is the gospel answer to the world's religions, even very good religions, religions with a lot of moral teaching and instruction and truth. Old points of worship ignorance, if you knew. Old points of worship ignorance have been made inexcusable by the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm he. Here's where it's said even more clearly. The, the times, look at this, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, there's a time word. So when is this now? We've got to get this figured out. When does this shift take place? There's the times of ignorance. Apparently, that's, that's in the past. This is the now part. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He does with this woman. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who do we know? And this we have given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Since the resurrection of Jesus, the name above all names, there's no excuse for, for trying anything else. There's no other living water. Neither Jerusalem nor Gerizim can open the door to a holy God. The seeking father, you'll notice that term in 21 and 23, seeking. He gives the spirit of regeneration and adoption to sons and daughters who come through Christ. All sinners need to confront. Three, the joy that comes from living for the father's pleasure 27 to 34. So his disciples come on the scene. They were away. They come on the scene. They come back. They marvel that he's talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat. I have food to eat. There's something that nourishes Jesus, and they don't, they don't get it. So the disciples said to one another, did somebody bring him a hamburger? Did we go by McDonald's? That's what they're saying. Jesus said, my, my food is to do the will who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is not a passage against the value of good food. We know Jesus experienced hunger. We know that. And we know he ate satisfying physical food, even after his resurrection. But is it possible, as this text seems to suggest, that, that there's a refreshment and a satisfaction in pleasing God that so replenishes are beings that, that others see the effects as being much like the sustenance of a good meal when you're fainting from hunger? Do they see that kind of delight and pleasure and joy in doing the things of the Lord? Just think about it. The opposite of living to please God, there are two. The opposite of living to please God is living to please self, or living to please others, which is another form of pleasing self. 
There are consequences when we forget. There are consequences, real consequences that come into a society that forgets the ultimate satisfaction comes in doing God's will. Here's what happens when young women, when young women live to please the appearance to please men rather than living for God. And you know what you end up with? You end up with a society full of eating disorders. Here's what happens when people forget that their ultimate satisfaction is found in doing the will of a sovereign Lord. You end up with people looking for satisfaction in all sorts of addictions. There are real-life consequences to not understanding my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. It makes all the difference in the world when we don't understand this. Four. I wanted to take more time there, but I won't. Four. I want to talk to you as we wrap up. The relationship between white harvest fields and springs of living water. Because Jesus makes this jump. It starts in 14, and then he picks it up in 35. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Okay, here's the living water part. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then, do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Where's he going? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white, ready for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, now they all come back, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. This comes from this conversation that he has with the woman at the well. And, and, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know this is indeed the Savior of the world. There's something here that is absolutely a first in John's gospel, right here. Up to this point, Jesus reaches out one by one. He calls the disciples. He names them one at a time, calls them. He talks to Nicodemus all by himself, one-on-one. He speaks to this Samaritan woman at first, all alone, one-on-one. And then something happens in 4.30. And they went out of the town and were coming to him. The woman passes on what she heard from Jesus, and the town, almost in mass, apparently, comes out to see, to see more of Jesus. And I'm just wondering, could it be that John wants to reveal exactly, exactly what happens when the Spirit produces an inward spring of living water? 
Are we meant to see the life of Christ as it overflows from the first one receiving it? It didn't look very happy when, after talking about living water and eternal life, the first thing Jesus does is he talks to this woman about her sin, and you wonder, where's this going? But then she receives, and she goes, and she tells, and they come. And not just because of what the woman said. They start listening to Jesus, and they want to see for themselves. And it multiplies, and it grows, and you see the water flowing. Living water is meant for harvest fields. Do you not say there are yet four months? This this, this is not ready yet. It's not time yet. That whole, this whole thing is, this whole text is all about, don't make excuses, Don. There's a lost world. What Jesus has done in your heart. Let people see it. Talk about it. Jesus exposes. Do you not say, he, he's, he's saying, you've got this pat answer. Isn't this what you say all the time? It's not quite time yet. A new outlook is needed. So there's threefold repetition in this 35th verse. Now I really am there. And, and it's addressed to me and it's addressed to you. When you see an idea repeated three times in a verse, you'll know, okay, that's the kernel. That's the thrust of that verse. And if you look at the last part of verse 35, look. I want you, 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 you tell me the repetition. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white. Look, lift up your eyes. See. Dawn, there's something you're not seeing. Look, lift up your eyes. See, awake to this. People perish without living water. They die of spiritual thirst. What else is a harvest good for except to be gathered? What else do you do with a harvest? Find the greatest joy in receiving living water, the kind that the truth about my life, if you knew everything about my life, I'd be embarrassed. Bring the truth of your life to Jesus. Worship all your heart. Let the Holy Spirit work. Truth, Spirit. Those two things together. And when you receive wonderful, pardoning, empowering, living water, let it flow to others. Let it flow to others.